Hi, everyone. Welcome to the November 20th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. So for anyone who has tried to get an autism evaluation, and that includes parents or caregivers, in the last five to 10 and maybe past that years, knows that the situation is bleak. There are wait lists at every turn. Wait lists for evaluation, wait lists for diagnosis, wait lists for intervention. And that means that the average age of diagnosis is a lot older than it actually should be or could be. On today's podcast, I have Dr. Sharif Taraman, who is a pediatric neurologist and the current CEO and the past chief medical officer of a organization called Cognoa. He's also an associate professor at UC Irvine in the Department of Pediatrics. So Cognoa was founded in 2013 and is a childhood development and pediatric behavioral health company that develops digital diagnostic and therapeutics. So I'll let him talk about what that is and why that's important a little later. But first I wanna go into a report that Cognoa recently wrote and conducted the research around that examined the situation around wait lists. Again, this is a huge problem in the community. And as I mentioned, is really stopping families from getting a timely evaluation and also prevents opportunities for intervention. So thank you, Dr. Terriman, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Alicia. Uh, great, great to be here. Uh, you know, so this, this topic is actually a, one of the biggest motivators for me to kind of change my clinical care practice paradigm and actually join Cognoa um, initially, as you mentioned, as chief medical officer and now as CEO. Um, so when I was the division chief at the Children's Health of Orange County, uh, you know, neurology was de facto the uh, go-to see kids with neurodevelopmental disorders that couldn't get into the two autism centers that we had in the county. And they're great autism centers, but you know, they're understaffed, uh, evaluations take a long time and, you know, uh, people couldn't get in. And so we were, you know, tasked with, here's a thousand kids on a wait list, fix that, get the kids in. And the reality is, is that I realized really quickly, even though I over doubled the number of neurologists that were in our practice, we still couldn't meet the demand. And at the end of doing all that, there was still a thousand kids on the wait list because we sort of just cap out at a thousand. I think that's the, I think it's artificial numbers um, that you're seeing. And so we really wanted to try and understand, um, and really this was sparked uh, by Scott Badish, really understand what is the state of the affairs. And so Cognoa sponsored this uh, survey and this, this research to really get a better handle on what is happening in, in, in the community and two patients within the United States. So um, can you describe the study? What was this study and how did it systematically examine wait lists, wait list length, and even what was causing them? Yeah, so in the report, there's actually, a, there's a little bit of mixing. So there's a, there's actually the survey that was conducted, but um, there was actually another survey that was all, sort of an informal survey. So at the Society for Behavioral and Developmental Pediatricians, they had surveyed their attendees at that conference and asked them about their wait times. Those are highlighted um, in the report that was published. The survey that we sponsored and conducted with Scott was reaching out to uh, both sole practitioners and multi-practitioner specialty centers. So that included hospitals, private practice, pub public health clinics, government agencies, uh, and then obviously academic institutions. Uh, and really asked them through a number of, um, you know, quite a survey essentially, what's happening at your institution? 
Um, what kind of wait times are you facing? Uh, what are the barriers to get into your uh, clinics? Uh, what are the challenges that you're facing as clinicians, specialty clinicians who are evaluating kids for developmental delay and obviously specifically autism? So we were able to get responses from 111 uh, uh, groups, of which 62% approximately were multi-practitioner diagnostic centers. Uh, and then what we know happens is there's a lot of solo practitioner shops that open up. And so um, about 38%, nearly 40% of our respondents were these solo practitioner centers. And what we were able to see is that, you know, there are individuals who are picking up sort of that, again, that de facto, I can't get into the autism center, I can't get into the academic place. Uh, and we'll talk about some of those factors. So I'm going to go and see this private practitioner. And what we found is many of what's happening to the, the, the community trying to get evaluations is they're being pushed into, you know, cash, cash pay. I'm going to pay to skip the line and the wait uh, because I'm, I'm concerned about my child. And so what you're seeing in the survey results is that we're, we're exacerbating the disparities, which we know have been longstanding because 44% of the people that we surveyed said we don't take Medicaid. And again, many of them only took commercial insurances and and met, and some of them were, no, we're, we're strictly cash. We'll give you a super bill. Um, go figure it out with your insurance if you have it. Yeah, and for, for people that may not understand why are, and I kind of described it, but why are these wait lists so problematic? Like why is, what would happen if there was a long wait list? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's, it, and again, from personal, like I'm going to pull some personal experiences here. You know, I think one of the most frustrating things for me as a clinician was when I would see somebody who's eight, 12, 15, or even an adult patient show up, have not had the opportunity to understand what their developmental delays were, or specifically what their autism uh, challenges are. And if you miss windows of opportunity to really effectively uh, intervene, it's much harder to kind of uh, go back in time. You can't, you can't, right? And so we know that there's this very peak neurodevelopmental window, right? Where I'm talking to the Science Foundation, so I've, most of the listeners probably appreciate this. You have a, a finite window of opportunity, like language development, for example. We know that if I can't help a child develop language skills by the time they turn five, or at least at least build a foundation, the likelihood that they're going to develop language in the future is exceedingly low. And so we need to use that, that window of opportunity as maximally as we can. And, and what we keep hearing, and I think is becoming more and more prominent, is that if you can identify these children, you know, when they're 18, 24, 36 months, really before th three is ideal, I mean, we can push it and say the first five, but you know, and I know, just like we were talking, if you identify a kid at the average age of diagnosis, which is currently 4.2 years in the United States, and then you have to wait, you know, let's say six to eight weeks to get into start therapy, and then the therapy takes another six months to really kick in, right now you will miss your window anyways. So really trying to get these kids under three, and this is actually one of our um, healthy people 2030 goals as a country. So in the United States, we have these healthy people goals. It's like, how do we make sure our population is healthy? And there is one that's focused on early autism identification and getting those kids into early treatment. And you know, and I know 
we're actually failing as a country. We failed our 2020 goals. And in fact, our 2030 goals are worse today than they were in 2020. We're actually getting worse as a country. And part of that is around, we've got a reliance on specialists that probably doesn't have to exist, right? One of the um, ways that maybe we're gonna actually make some progress here is some of the initiatives around allowing pediatricians to make a diagnosis, but understanding like that can't happen in a vacuum. We have to be able to give them things that actually work in a primary care space um, to do a, a, a thorough and, and accurate evaluation of children for developmental delays. Uh, and then I think the other thing that we we see is, uh, and I was mentioning, there a recent study that came out of Boston Children's, and they found 37% of kids who had had that early intervention actually have what we call an optimal outcome in autism. So nearly four in every 10 children in the most recent study who got that early intervention no longer have autism as a quote-unquote disorder, right? These are kids that will probably end up being adults who are what we are, what we're terming as neurodivergent, right? And so again, you know, this is a group that probably doesn't need the explanation, but just in case we got listeners who don't understand this, you know, you can think about and maybe something that a lot of people maybe identify with or something that I use to explain this to families is this is like obsessive compulsive traits. So as a physician, personally, myself, I have some traits of which I have some obsessions and some compulsions, but they don't cause me dysfunction in my life. They actually are kind of like a superpower. And many doctors will will, will attest that they have some of these, you know, characteristics about them. And they're really good and they, and they make you a better physician. But they don't cause dysfunction. If my obsessions and my compulsives, compulsions prevent me from leaving the house because I can't get out of my head that I turned off the stove, right? Now that's a challenge and it's a disorder. In the same way, autistic features or traits can be like superpowers. Um, but if untreated and are causing dysfunction, we want to be able to give those individuals the tools and the skills so that it's not a disorder anymore. And I think that this is a really uh, fine point that we need to really make, right? You know, it's it's autism disorder because it's causing challenges in that person's life. If it's not a disorder, then it's cool. It's autism and it's like beautiful and let's celebrate it. We're not trying to cure that thing. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I think about autism. And that's how I think about disorders. Um, and, and really that early intervention, as you mentioned, is so critical. But the wait lists are a problem and they're disproportionately a problem for minoritized groups. People of low socioeconomic status, we we heard in the survey and we saw, right? If we don't take Medicaid, we, we are only cash-based. Right, you, you're you're if you live in a rural area, 80% of counties don't have a diagnostic center. So if I'm a single parent working on a farm and I have to drive a thousand miles to get my kid evaluated, it's probably not going to happen this month, right? And it, and even when they give me the appointment, I might not be able to get there. You are uh, actually documenting a lot of what we've heard about anecdotally or what I've talked to people about. People living in, say, eastern Washington who have to drive to Seattle and stay for days just for, a, you know, your regular appointment, right? Um, long, long wait lists to get an evaluation. Um, you know, the, these are realities, but in fact, they need to be documented, just like the CDC documents the average age of diagnosis, because we need to know what we can do to change it and whether or not things that we do or that are changing it are actually working. 
So it's really important. I think a lot of families may be listening to this and saying like, well, this was my experience. Like this isn't so novel. Well, in fact, it needs to be documented. It needs to be systematically evaluated because we need to outline all of the different things that are causing it and then figure out what we can do to change it. And um, on that note, your results were pretty sobering. Um, You did mention the 44% do not take Medicaid. Uh, There's stories about people having to pay out of pocket um, and mortgage their house to cover some of these interventions or even diagnostic evaluations. Um, School systems that will deny care, and then people have to go out and get you know, an evaluation that says that their child needs the care, a private one. So if you could give us kind of a summary of what you found, there was different numbers in terms of how many had wait lists of four months to a year. And I can tell you, I know our listeners have heard this before. We had Whitney Guthrie on a podcast talking about her paper that showed that intervention delivered between 18 and 24 months is, um, you know, actually more effective than that delivered after 24 months. And not that intervention isn't necessary at every phase of the life, right? So just because you get intervention at 18 to 24 months doesn't mean you're off the hook forever. But there is a different trajectory when you get that early intervention. So what were the most surprising findings of the surveys that you did? Yeah, so I'll start with the the Society for Developmental Pediatricians. And I think that that, so again, it's like how you slice and dice this data is a little bit, you know, kind of you'll get different numbers. So that the one sort of informal survey that was just done at that um, uh, meeting was showing that the majority of centers, over 50% had wait lists of more than nine months. And I think that that speaks to the extreme shortage of developmental pediatricians that exists in the country. So I'm one of maybe about 1500 pediatric neurologists. I think the last time I checked is, you know, don't quote me on this number, but somewhere between like maybe 500 and 700 developmental pediatricians in the whole country, right? And and we have um, really a good understanding about these specialty physician shortages. So uh, in our survey though, what we had found is, is that uh, I think it was somewhere around like 60% of the, um, uh, of the uh, uh, autism or the the places surveyed had wait lists of longer than four months. Um, and then of the ones that were in those longer than four months, there was, uh, or I think it was over a year, there was a, a cohort of them. So 25% were more than six months and 21% were a year or more or not taking any referrals. So I, I think that's also key. Like you have places that are just like, you can't get in uh, we can't take you, or uh, we will only take you if you have very specific insurances, right? And and not to call out any specific places, but there are health systems that if you're not referred by a doctor within the healthcare system, you cannot get into that autism center, or if you are not part of the academic insurance plan that's taken at that health um uh, that set health center, you cannot get in, right? So, so some of them also have sort of artificial, like waitlist times, because it's like, oh, it's four months, but we're actually not open to everybody. We're only open to this very specific demographic of people. And again, I think to me, the the like seeing that happen in the healthcare system was just so motivating, if you will, right? I know you said sobering, so, uh, sobering, but. To me, it was it was an opportunity that look somebody has to do something, 
and this can't be a person thing. It's not, you're, we're not going to add suddenly 20,000 developmental pediatricians or 20,000 pediatric neurologists. But we do have a workforce. We have about 67,000 pediatricians. And as one of the leaders within the you know pediatric realm, we're really, I'm hyper-focused on how do I help a pediatrician get the knowledge of a specialist and make the correct diagnosis? And I think this is where the opportunities really can, can come through with technology and having you know, technological advancements was, was an area that I knew I could help with. That's sort of my background. But it's more than just that, right? It's There's policies that need to come in. And one of the big policies that came in that was a driver for weights is that the evaluations, in my mind, are, are probably excessive, right? So what we heard is most of the evaluations are several hours, so at least three. Many are actually doing eight-hour evaluations, yeah, I mean, I'll throw in my personal experience, which is I have an amazing center near where I live, and I'm going to call them out. It's Children's Specialized Hospital of New Jersey. They are amazing. They do take Medicaid. Um, they see a wide diversity of, of developmental disorders, not just autism. Um, it took me several months to get a first appointment. Then it took me almost eight months to see a developmental pediatrician. Um, I was on a wait list for many, many months to get intervention. Luckily, I I had the means to pay out of pocket for intervention on my own. Um, and even now, you know, I have to make appointments six months in advance for my every, you know, for, for appointments or I just can't get in. You're absolutely not going to overnight double the number of developmental pediatricians. Um, so... What is it that can be done? So you're, you kind of mentioned empowering pediatricians rather than specialists to be able to make diagnoses. So talk to me a little bit more about that. Uh, let me actually go back to another point though. So, so I think that this is important. Um, as a specialist myself, I think it's really important. Obviously the person in front of me, the patient that I'm seeing right now is exceedingly important. But I also have to think about the... 10 kids that are waiting in a line to be seen. And we have an obligation to do no harm. So if I'm trained in a specific way, and this is really, I'm, I'm gonna be a little bit controversial here. If you are following a dictum or a paradigm that you were trained on and you're not questioning, is this really beneficial for my patient? Then you're part of the problem that's causing a population health crisis with the United States. And whether we want to admit it or not, you're doing harm to kids who are waiting in the line. So if if I take eight hours to evaluate a child and I get no return or no benefit additional to that parent, or do I really need to do all of that in the first visit? And I'm harming kids that are on my wait list who are waiting, then what am I doing? Am I really fulfilling my oath as a physician? And I, and I really want to put that out because to me, it really, we have to think about population health. We have had a number of kids now who have been challenged because they have not had probably the, the same level of socialization that the kids five years ago had. And we were wearing masks, which we know have had unintended consequence or a, a known consequence, which is it has caused challenges in the way kids are communicating. And those COVID babies are now COVID toddlers. So the one in four and the one in six that 
have a risk for delay or there's a concern for delay are are much more. And if these if these centers don't recognize that they're going to be even more impacted then and we don't do something really soon, we're going to be in a state of not, we're already in a state of crisis. But I feel like the system is going to implode. Um, and what's going to happen is is if we anchor and this is the challenge that happened in primary care. Primary care didn't have the right tools to assess kids for autism. And, you know, uh, some of the screening tools are good, but many of them miss many kids. We know this. Um, MCHAT, for example, and MCHAT follow-up, there's a lot of really good work um, that looks at how good it is at, like, picking up kids and, and kids actually being missed. And what we know is, is that sometimes in the primary care space, we'll anchor on, oh, there's a speech delay. Oh, there's a peculiar behavior and they miss the bigger picture. And so what we, again, that to me, the, the, the technology has to be there that allows us to capture the, the presentation of a child's development very rapidly. It needs to be autism specific. And I, this is the work that I've been doing at Cognola since I started there in 2017, is to say, can we create a device that works asynchronously where parents can, we can do all the, the best practices of an autism evaluation, but do it efficiently, where you can capture data from a parent remotely. We can use home videos so we can actually get a naturalistic picture of what the child's behavior looks like, how they're interacting, uh, and then uh, uh, give that sort of empowerment to the primary care physician to then answer questions that they don't need to be specially trained on, and then show them all this data and, and do it in a way that's efficient and do it in a way that meets best practices and do it in a way that where they can get a comprehensive picture, but also super responsibly, right? I think, you know, people sometimes shy away from technology because they're afraid of it or they don't understand it. Um, artificial intelligence doesn't need to be scary. Uh, if you do it right, it actually can democratize medicine and it can address a lot of the biases and structural racism that we have um, in our country. If your training set is all white males, and then you go and deploy that into a clinical setting, you're gonna have a white male autism detector. And this is actually not, not just true for artificial intelligence, it's true for our research tools that we repurpose for clinical care. Many of them are normalized and have a predominance of white male children in them. And so again, if we really are thinking about our research as a collective body of scientific individuals, we don't have adequate female representation in our samples. We don't have adequate African-American, Hispanic, indigenous population, right? We, we've, we, we haven't done that. And so if we're gonna be, and this is not you know, a dig on the scientific community that's studying autism, but it's an opportunity for us to actually be more thoughtful about our research. And so, you know, when I was chief medical officer and I was designing the, both the study and making sure that our training sets had representative populations, it was something that I was hyper-focused on and intentional about to make sure that when we did our device and we created it and, we, and this pl played out in the covariate analysis, it wouldn't have biases based on sex, socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, uh, et cetera. So, so that was really important. Um, and and you can look at, and I think when we're looking at technologies that are coming out, we want to understand, was their training set, or if they're, especially if they're using AI, was their training set diverse? And when they tested this device, 
did they test it on a population that was representative of the U.S. population? And I'm proud to say that we were able to do both. So you touched on a lot of issues and I was writing them down around. Sorry. No, that's okay. Got long-winded. Features <laughs> and coverage that I think are important and we'll get back to, but we, you mentioned this digital technology. So I want you to have the opportunity to talk specifically about the digital technology, how you're addressing it and how you see it being, how you've been developing it and how you see it being used to, to address these issues of wait lists and even disparities in diagnosis. Yeah, so I, I think the first thing that was really important is going through the Food and Drug Administration to create software as a medical device, I think is a really important step. Uh, and it was something that when I came into the company was was one of the first things that I was tasked with slash supported as an, or, as an organizational goal. And, I, and I, the reason that that to me is so important is that there's a level of scrutiny that you have to meet to go through the FDA to get approval of a software as a medical device and actually say that this is a, a diagnostic for autism. Um, and that includes cybersecurity and patient privacy and all kinds of things. I think what we've seen is there is a boom of technology out there and it's, some, it's somewhat hard to navigate what is legitimate and what is not. So for me, that was an important step. And it's something that I look at as a clinician to say, did the FDA review this thing or not? And, and I think that I would encourage those who are developing technologies for autism, if they're going to either diagnose or treat autism, I mean, realistically, from a regulatory perspective, they, they actually are obliged to go through the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, and there's a whole center around this, um, this, this area. Uh, and then again, I think the technologies are very helpful. So one of the things that as a neurologist, right, and again, questioning your training, right? So if I take deep tendon reflexes as an example, right? So if you've ever been at the doctor's office and they tap your knee and your knee jumps, that's a deep tendon reflex. The way we grade is I'm, it's really subjective. I'm looking at it and I go, oh, that's two plus, right? Like how fast did it go and how brisk was it? And did this spread to the other side? Like there's no, there's no objective quantification of that. And I, what I'm seeing is, and I'm actually really excited about it, is that technologies are allowing us to get better quantification and objective measurements of children's development and be able to track these over time. And I think that this is going to be really helpful. Also understanding where are you investing your energies from, for, from a treatment perspective? Because if I understand and have an objective third party sort of measuring my child's development, I'll know, right, if the therapy that I'm investing in is actually making a difference and where it's making a difference. And I, and I think what we're seeing is this digitization of diagnosis and, and tracking of response to treatment for all kinds of neurodevelopmental conditions, including autism, is going to be um, a worthwhile investment. Uh, and, you know, there's an entire consortium out there looking at digital biomarkers for autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. So what, so for the Cognoa tool, so when you talk about this, you know, digital technologies, what kind of, can you give a description about what that is for the Cognoa tool? Yeah. So, so the, the tool or the device is called Canvas DX. Uh, it is a uh, diagnostic for autism for children 18 to 72 months who have concern for developmental delay expressed either by the caregiver or by the uh, healthcare provider. I don't like the word provider, by the way, so just we'll call that clinician, um, but that's what the FDA uses. 
Um, so as clinicians, if we're concerned about development, and it doesn't need to be an autism specific concern. And again, the reason that we went with that is we know that parental concern about development in general, it doesn't need to be like, I think my kid has autism, but in general, or the clinician identifying any developmental delay, those kids should be evaluated for autism, which is I think part of the reason that the specialty centers are so inundated. And the reality is, is you don't need a specialist to evaluate everything, right? Or, and even if you did, it shouldn't delay treatment. So the goal is, the clinician and the parent are then engaged in a, uh, let's get this kid evaluated. Parents download an application. It's available for Android and iOS. Um, the Android part was important for equity and inclusion for, for folks. Um, we do have it available in Spanish um, and we have a roadmap to include other languages in the future. Parents answer, answer a brief questionnaire. This is really important. This is the beauty of artificial intelligence. So with machine learning tools, Dr. Wall was able to identify maximally predictive features of autism from the, the, the gamut of things that we were using to evaluate kids historically. So that includes things like ADIR, ADOS, uh, CARS, neuropsych measures, et cetera. And using machine learning, you can actually say, hey, these are the things that you need to ask a parent that are gonna be the most efficient question set. So if I ask you a thousand questions Right. And some centers do this. They ask you to fill out 100 pages of questions. Probably my experience is pages five through 95, right? Or five through 100 are the quality just starts going down. It's just because you get fatigued and the, the amount, the quality of the questions you're asking sometimes also can mislead, mislead you. So if you ask a lot of extraneous questions, it's like this is um, what are maximally, question, maximally predictive questions that a parent can answer? And then they upload two videos of the child in two different settings uh, in their natural environment, doing natural stuff, you know, like uh, opening presents on a, at a birthday party or something like that, or, you know, playing at the park. And that allows us to kind of see how that child interacts. And what we're doing is we're extracting what we call digital biomarkers. So it's how does the child respond if the parent calls their name or someone says something to them? Um, if they're look, playing with a toy, is there joint attention uh, or not? What is the eye contact? What is the eye tracking? Um, are there repetitive or stereotypic movements? And what is the degree and severity or quality of those movements? Um, so there's a there's a tons of digital biomarkers that you can extract from home videos, a surprisingly high amount. Uh, and you know, essentially, this is a, it's a unstructured observation, but it's more natural than what we're currently doing in the healthcare system. And I can tell you again from experience and what we heard in some of the survey is, you know, having a child come in. And having them do a structured observation, sometimes it can be very challenging. Uh, and, you know, you might have to cancel and, you know, come back tomorrow because the kid's hungry and traveled a thousand miles to get to the center. Um, and then there's a question set for the clinicians, which is, you know, 13 or 15 questions, depending on the age. And again, they don't necessarily need to be they, a specialist or a non-specialist can answer this. So what you can find is, is now we can have a structured consistent way of evaluating kids for autism, for developmental delays. Every child gets a personalized report with their developmental domains tracked out by how 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 atypical were the questions or the features identified answered. So, you know, 100% challenge score in, in a specific domain would be, you know, around, let's say, language, would be every language question was answered the most severe or most atypical. Um, if they have a zero percent score, it would be every question, every feature was um, the you know scored the most typical. 
Uh, and then uh, all the features are mapped to DSM-5 criteria. So it's pretty easy to kind of see, does this child actually meet criteria? And then we give the algorithms prediction, um, which we know has a very high positive predictive value at 88% and a very high negative predictive value at 96%. Uh, and we can give that definitive uh, yes or no, uh, is autism present uh, uh, about 67% of the time. And that's that's standardized against independent specialist evaluation of children uh, in at least two clinicians agreeing independently that the child has meets criteria for autism. Uh, and then if there was disagreement between those two clinicians, it actually went to a third specialist to serve as a tiebreaker. And I think that that's a really robust way to determine if a child has autism because what we saw in the clinical study is 20% of the time there was disagreement between the first two clinicians, it would go to a third clinician. Uh, in the wild, uh, most of us who are in practice have seen this. Um, you know, there are children that are really difficult to diagnose. It's, sometimes it's not clear. Uh, and, so, you know, I would say at least 30% of the time, there's going to be sometimes disagreement between clinicians about whether the child actually meets criteria for autism or not. And so, you know, having a robust, what we call reference standard, I think is really important for, for these clinical studies. Um, because if you use a single person, we know, right, whether I like to admit it or not. So I'm very uh, open, right? I am a white male, right? I am going to have white male bias, whether I like it or not. And where I trained is going to bias me, right? And, I, right? and as clinicians, this is important. Our tool gives 67% of the time a definitive answer. A third of the time, it's going to say, I don't know. And we we purposely do that. So if it can't say with a high degree of accuracy at that 96% NPV or 88% PPV, it'll put the children in an indeterminate category or abstain from making a determination. It'll give you all the information. And then as a clinician, you can decide what the next steps are. So what we've seen pediatricians do is say, okay, I can understand now that this is you know, a specific language disorder, or there is a lot of sensory issues in this child. And it still allows them to get to the right services early. Mm -hmm. So speech or OT for those two examples as a as a potential. Um, but what we've seen is two, so two things. So you're right, it's hard to be a pediatrician, but I also know the family generally better than the specialist. Mm -hmm. And so my concern is, and what we've seen in some some situations is the there is a there is actually a probably a, a a false positive rate that is a little bit excessive in autism and i think there's two reasons i can tell you as a clinician who's been in the space we have patients that are diagnosed with autism uh because the the specialist is trying to get that child services and they'll label things autism that's probably not actually autism uh, one of those is probably intellectual disability that is known to happen pretty frequently um so I think that's one challenge there. I think the other one on the flip side of that, um, they don't actually know the family as well as the pediatrician. So I think that there's a balance here. I think that we're, what we're going to see is we're going to see uh, probably like a expert pediatrician within a group practice who sort of takes this on. And so if I'm a, in a group practice of 10 physicians, one of the pediatricians is going to get really good at evaluating developmental delays. And they're going to be the the champion within a within a group practice. Um, I think what we're going to see is, is that at least a, a you know half the kids maybe that we're going to get sent to the specialty care setting can actually get a diagnosis in primary care and get started on treatment. 
Um, and then the other thing is that my hope would be, can we actually take the eight hour, four hour, three hour evaluations and make them a little bit more reasonable so that we're not creating um, disparities for the population that's in the wait lists on the specialty care side. And so the technology, if I can get data in a more efficient manner, if I don't have to spend, by the way, I, most clinicians in the survey were telling us they're spending one to four hours generating a report yeah. that they don't get compensated for that is kind of arduous and leads to things like burnout, quote unquote, or moral injury, right? And we have clinicians leaving clinical practice because they're inundated with a burden placed on them by an insurance company that you have to document in a very specific way to get treatment for this child and et cetera, et cetera. So if we can automate that, which is one of the things that we actually do with Canvas CX, like to me, that's a huge win. If I can make the developmental pediatricians and the specialists more efficient with their time, that's a huge win for us too. That's a that's a win for the wait lists. So the your Canvas DX, the Canvas DX, it's you guys do that, right? The pediatrician sends them to you and then you guys do that. The pediatrician doesn't have to manage video uploads or administration of tests and things like that. Yeah, correct? it's all soft, it's all software, Alicia. We're not like a service. We're not like a service. So we're not we're and we're not diagnosing the kids. What we're doing is we're giving the information to the pediatrician or the specialist. So we have both actually utilizing the device. We have specialists that realize like, okay, I can be way more efficient in my practice and I don't have to document as much as I did before because it's all done for me. Uh, and the same thing for the pediatricians. I can actually now diagnose. I don't have to refer all these kids and I can rule out more effectively kids that don't actually have autism and do it with a degree of confidence. So in a way, yes, we, we do that quote unquote for them. Um, but ultimately, the, the the clinician is making the diagnosis based on DSM-5 criteria. But if I can present all that information to you in an efficient way, I, I think it, it it has a big potential to cut down wait lists and, and increase our ability to get kids into early intervention, which I think is going to have a huge impact on long-term autism disorder rates. I think the neurodivergent rates will stay the same, but the the the, the kids that are actually developing or maintain a disordered state and ultimately struggle with stuff when they get to like high school and teenage years is going to be much, much less if we can get them that early intervention. Yeah, there have been studies that have shown actually, I mean, not that this is all about cost, but the cost effectiveness of early intervention on later access to um, other medical and psychological services later, it does provide a cost savings. And I guess to parents, it's not just about the cost if you have insurance, but it's about the time that some of these services take, right? And the need for those services. And if you can lessen that, then that's a good thing. Absolutely. So I, I, I don't think anybody wants to spend 40 hours a week doing <laughs> therapies, right? But no. but if I could, if you told me I can do 40 hours a week now of therapy when my child's two to three to four, or I can do 40 hours a week for the rest of my life. I'll take the 40 hours now, right? Well, so let's just talk about some of these other systematic issues, right? So the fact that, you know, doctors don't take Medicaid or that certain insurance companies require all these referrals and things like that. So how does Canvas DX do that? I mean, it, it is normed for different, uh, you know, for different racial ethnic groups and even girls, which that's a 
listeners to the podcast know that girls and females with autism are an especially dear issue to Autism Science Foundation's heart. Um, So there's that issue and how to diagnose females. But what about some of the other systemic issues, right? So the fact that, you know, insurance companies may, you know, require a lot of red tape or that, um, you know, some places won't take insurance. So what are some of the solutions in your mind to those things? Yeah, so I mean, I think the the the, we're seeing this push on the insurance companies to kind of change their policies. Um, There, there is no. I I mean, I I think we talk about there's a quote unquote standard of care, but the reality is there is no standard of care. What we found in the survey is that clinicians have a a a laundry list of about thirty different things that they're technically using to evaluate autism, and it's like choose your own adventure. And, And I think a lot of that actually creates some of the disparities and inequities because there is there is not like a systematic way that these kids are being evaluated. Um, we are doing a lot of work at Cognoa to um, work with insurers to actually help them understand the benefits of early diagnosis, um, efficient diagnosis, and we're making really good progress in that front. So my hope is um, both commercial Medicaid uh, we'll have good coverage for our device for both pediatricians and specialists to use um, as we move forward. Um, so, uh, you know, as as those kind of come up, we'll, we'll keep keep people posted. Um, but you're, you're right. Like there's also, again, we, we need the specialty societies that come to the table. We need the insurers that come to the table. We need the policymakers that come to the table. Um, we need the education system to come to the table, and and I there is a there is a good push, right? Again, and it's it's I would point us to a national twenty thirty healthy people goal on let's get these kids into services early, and if we can rally around that, uh, I I think we're going to see see that we can actually improve that number. I, it is very doable, but it's a combination. It's going to be technology for sure, efficiencies, insurance change public policy change. Um, and then I think we have to we have to figure out a way to be less reliant on specialists and make our specialists more efficient. Is there anything else you want to add that we didn't talk about in terms of wait lists or what Cogno is doing or anything else as far as trends you're seeing in the field? I do know that digital technologies in general are becoming a very, very um, more accepted practice. I couldn't tell you what, you know, I, I I can't tell you other than the fact that I'm reading, not just within the field of autism, but in fields like, you know, assessments and even diagnosis of everything from mental health to cancer, that these digital health technologies are becoming, um, you know, more and more used. Yeah. And, and, I think that the the reason why there's so much excitement around them and or adoption is is that if they can bring efficiencies, right? So if we look at electronic health records, there was a lot of benefits, right? Patient safety, but but operationally, they are exhausting, right? They They actually have caused us to take more time, be able to see less patients, right? So I, I was... I'm kind of what they, they, what do they call like, I grew up in the digital transformation from non, I was paper-based when I started and I actually helped to bring on electronic health records at institutions that I was at. And, and in the, the time differential, right. Uh, was huge, right. You spend a lot more time in electronic medical records than you do on paper-based, but the paper-based stuff was, was harmful, right. There was a lot of errors. It was missing information. 
So the newer technologies are able to not only give us better information, obje more objective information, but it's able to do it in a more efficient manner. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't potential things that you got to be careful with, right? Like any new technology, right? We want to be thoughtful of adoption. We don't want to exacerbate disparities. I think there are things that we can do to prevent the what we call a digital divide, right? So as a company, for example, right, we're, we're very also sensitive to make sure that if somebody doesn't have internet access, how do we support that individual? If they don't own a smartphone, what can we do to work with the practice to help, help ensure that for this specific purpose, they can get a smartphone, you know, temporarily to do the evaluation so they can get the answers that they need. Right? These are things that, you know, I, I am and our company is mission driven about, um, and we, we will continue to do as much as we can to make sure that we're not exacerbating disparities. Um, but I think that everybody recognizes and the specialists know that having help is not going to take away quote unquote business from the specialists. We're inundated, we're drowning, right? In evaluations. And if we can offload some of it to primary care, if we can do it more efficiently and we can do it more objectively and with less bias and more equitably, especially again for rural patients. I think, you know, one of the things that floored me during the pandemic is we had parents calling us and saying, can we use your tool? And I'm like, no, we have a research study that's going on, but yeah. um, they're like, we, we, they, they canceled on us. The, the autism center canceled on us and they won't tell us when they're going to see us because they don't know how to do a remote assessment. And they, they refuse, they're refusing to do it. And again, you can say, well, we won't do a re remote assessment because it's not validated. But then again, um, you know, perfection can be the enemy of good and, and, and everything has to be weighed risk benefit, right? So I would much rather have not that, that, by the way, we found no difference in Canvas DX use quality and accuracy being used remotely versus in person. So over a telehealth visit, the, the, the clinician answering the question set did not uh, change the outcome of the device. So we know that it works the same remote or not. And I think that that's really important because your point, you've got families driving or even flying. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but actually, if uh, if there's a, for the State Department, if there's a child overseas for a, one of our foreign dignitaries who has a developmental concern, they get an appointment, you know, nine months from now, and we're flying that family from wherever to, you know, DC to get an evaluation. It, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of like, doesn't make a lot of sense. And so- if we can get an answer or at least a preliminary answer and get them started on the right track, why wouldn't we do that? So being able to do remote assessments, I think, is another one that's really, I think, important from a technology perspective. And I think this is why we're seeing people adopting the technology. Um, a lot of this does, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think, um, come up to how insurers are thinking about autism, autism evaluations. Um, and if we can work with them uh, and and help them understand, look, this is actually going to improve not only quality and quality of care, but it's going to improve the costs, both near term and short term. Uh, I, you know, I think that that's really important. I, I, I just leave you maybe with this um, interesting other research study that was done. We looked at claims data. And we looked at median time to diagnosis of children. So from initial concern to diagnosis, and we just stratified kids as 
before the median and after the median. Kids who are after the median time of diagnosis cost about twice as much to the healthcare system as the kids who are diagnosed early for all cause, healthcare cost utilization. And we saw a higher rate of hospitalizations in the, the uh, later group. And one of the reasons that when you really dig into the data, and again, you know, pulling from personal experiences, if a child's not identified as having autism, they are probably more likely to have elopement behaviors that are untreated. And elopement behaviors, in my personal experience, there was a child who actually was struck by a motor vehicle because of their elopement behaviors. And if we would have potentially understood that that was autism, addressed the elopement behaviors, that child wouldn't have had a critical care stay, which is mm-hmm. wildly expensive when you have trauma related to, I was struck by a motor vehicle. Um, and another really um, kind of, you know, hit home example of this is, um, you know, some children with autism have very restrictive eating patterns. Um, they can develop nutritional deficiencies and it's very well documented, uh, you know, like scurvy happens in the autism community when they have very restrictive eating behaviors. Um, so they get vitamin C deficient uh, and th- those will lead to hospitalizations. And so, but if we can get those kids into early intervention and you can say, okay, here's an element behavior, here's strategies to you as a parent, you know, here's eating challenges that the child has, here's how we're going to deal with the sensory issues. Those kids are less likely to have a movement that results in a critical trauma and less likely to have nutritional deficiencies because you understand that this child has restricted eating how do you address it? Are we, can, what can we do to f- supplement exact, as an example, right? So those things won't happen if we identify these children early. If we wait, the parents don't know, right? They know something's different about their child's development, but they don't understand the, f- the full picture of it. Uh, so these technologies can definitely help us. Yeah, I don't call them challenging behaviors anymore. I call them... Um dangerous behaviors because challenging to me was like, oh, you know, calculus in college was challenging. These are behaviors that can cause harm and even death, right? So we're talking about elopement, aggression, eating behaviors, and that includes pica, which if for some people is when kids with autism and sometimes other will just eat anything, right? And I know a number of people who their kids have eaten golf balls or they've eaten doll heads or whatever. And it's not it's just it's it's just something that they do, and if you don't know to prevent it, you end up in the emergency room multiple times a year. So absolutely, um, absolutely. that's another aside. We could have another conversation about neurodivergent versus autism spectrum disorder. We can have a conversation. We can have many conversations. But um, thank you so much for for joining this podcast, and um, we definitely for look forward to you know hearing more about Cognoa. And I will put a link to the Cognoa website in the um, podcast summary so people know exactly what uh, what the tool is and what it does. Thank you for your time, Alicia. And keep up the great work that you all are doing at the Autism Science Foundation. Oh, thank you.